Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 116 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. I'm so happy that you're joining me. We have a fantastic episode today. This one is so good and I think so important. Dr. Anna Blake is joining me today. Dr. Blake is a family physician in rural Canada, and she's a life coach at the Anti-Fragile MD, focused on helping physicians deal with burnout, perfectionism, overwhelm. And she has a really powerful story herself of dealing with this as well as postpartum depression and has become quite the spokesperson for physician mental health and physician suicide prevention. Now, I think because we are talking about, you know, very important topic about physician mental health on this episode, I want to start this episode by saying if you are struggling, if you are dealing with a depression or if you're feeling at risk of hurting yourself, having thoughts of suicide, reach out for help. There are many physician support lines that are confidential. Dr. Blake mentions and gives one in the interview here. But if you just Google, there's one in your state, there's one in your province. There's a national physician support line for the U.S., which is 1-888-409-0141. Reach out for help. You are important and you are needed. And it doesn't have to feel like this. All right, now let's get to the interview with Anna. All right, welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you so much for joining me this early Friday morning. (laughs) It's not so early in my neck of the woods. <laughs> Thank you, Siobhan. It, it feels early for you. <laughs> yes, yes. I've been lamenting to Siobhan. My, uh, I'm currently pregnant. My pregnancy woes. So yes, it does feel early still. I think all of you who've been pregnant can relate to your mornings just being rough. <laughs> So um, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today and I'm a big fan of your work and look forward to working with you after I get this baby out. So (laughs) that's my next mission (laughs) to get back on track. So can you start by telling people just a little bit about yourself? And obviously you have a very powerful story, which we're going to go into, but maybe let's just start with kind of your general who you are and what you do aside from being pregnant. Yes. (laughs) So my most recent accomplishment that I am most proud of is that I'm a life coach at my business called the Anti-Fragile Female MD, where I help early to mid-career female physicians who are struggling with burnout. And really, we work to prevent this continuum from burnout 
to mental health crisis to suicide, which we know is a staggering issue for physicians in Canada and in the U.S., Other things about me, though, I'm a rural family doctor in Own Sound, Ontario, and I'm an obstacle course racer, although I haven't been on a course in quite a few years now, thanks to COVID and having babies. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to getting back to that after this, this baby's done cooking. I'm also somebody who's been through my own weight gain story and weight loss story more than once. And, you know, I'm going to have to go through that again once this baby comes out. But I think, you know, I can bring some of that expertise to the table as well in terms of how coaching helped me in that journey. And yes, I'm a mother to uh, one little two and a bit year old and got another little girly on the way. So exciting. As as hard (laughs) as it is, it's so exciting. I was saying to Hannah before we start recording that I vomited through both of my pregnancies the entire time. I've got quite some stories of like rounding on patients and like having to run out of the room. (laughs) Like, (laughs) uh, so bad for those patients. Anyways, but what we're talking about today is not pregnancy-induced nausea. It's mental health for physicians. Mm -hmm. And what we were, Anna and I were talking before we started recording is what I really see the link of this topic, I think it's such an important topic and it cannot be discussed enough because as we talk through some of the statistics, they are staggering, especially when we talk about suicide and suicide in a physician. Suicide in anybody is obviously horrible, but the idea of you know physician suicide rates being so high because people feel like they can't get help in some way is just devastating and so sad. The place where I think it links in when we're talking about weight Is that often, you know, when our mood is low and when we're really struggling with our mental health or if we're really struggling with burnout, our brains like to really think negatively and our body and our size and our eating is one thing that they like to focus on. So often if your mood is really low, your brain may be so focused on the fact that you need to lose weight. And it also may be driving other behaviors like, you know, eating to cope with the low mood. But the reality is, and this is something we can talk about more, is I think it really you know, if it's you have a really low mood or you're really burnt out, the weight is not the first place to work. The place to work is that burnout and that mental health and trying to get yourself back into a better position. And then you'll be in an easier spot to actually manage weight. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, you know, I really love that you say that, Siobhan, because I think that's the case actually really with a lot of things, right? Is that I think we we often turn we often think about external problems that we need to fix in our life. And we think the solution is to fix all of those external problems. But a big part of what I've learned through this journey myself is how turning inward and looking inward at where our limiting beliefs are, our struggles, if we can really look at that and we can start to address that first, all of these other things become easier to work on. doesn't mean we don't need specific tools to address those things, but they all become easier to work on. Before I forget, I want to share something that I think is really important anytime we're going to have a conversation about physician burnout, mental health, suicide, is if you're feeling acutely suicidal and you need some help, I want to make sure that everybody listening, at least in Canada and the US, is aware of a resource that they can access. So in Canada, we have a suicide helpline. The number is 1-833-456-4566. 
or you can send a text to 741741. This is 24 hour support. And in the US, there's a physician helpline as well, which is 1 800 273 TALK or 273 8255. So please, if you're listening to this and it stirs up anything for you and you think, you know, you need some help, these are places where you can get immediate 24 7 help. Yeah. And do you know what, if people call those lines, what could they expect? Like, I assume it's confidential, Mm -hmm. you know, within the normal realms where probably if the person listening feels they're actually at risk of hurting themselves, I'd assume would have to act just like we as physicians would have to act if somebody's at risk of hurting themselves, but otherwise would be confidential. Do you know? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak to what the professional obligations are of the counselors Mm -hmm. who take those calls, but what I can say is this, is that they will make every effort to direct people towards any resource. I mean, I suppose if somebody was in, I think we confer that if somebody was in acute distress and about to make an attempt that they would make an attempt to get emergency services there as quickly as possible to intervene. But certainly I think that the key thing to know is that there are resources available 24-7 for help. And If truly that's what you need because you're that close to making an attempt, then let these services take care of you and help you through what you need, right? That's what they're there for. That's the only thing they want to do is help people get the help that they need. Yeah, I think it's so important. Shall we start with you telling a little bit about your story? Sure. Yeah. So I made a few notes to make sure I didn't miss anything. But, you know, my story with mental health struggles and suicidality really actually goes back further than my more sort of recent story and, you know, comes back to some struggles that I had in my teens as well. But I went through quite a long period of time where when I was in medical school and residency and starting out practice where actually from a mental health standpoint, I was doing fairly well. But a lot changed in 2018 when I got pregnant with my first baby. I had a tough pregnancy. And one of the ways I coped with a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry was I overate throughout my pregnancy. So that was sort of the beginning of my journey with going from being shortly before I got pregnant, a racing in the obstacle course racing world championships, being the fittest I'd ever been in my life to gaining almost 80 pounds while I was pregnant and really starting to struggle with my body image and my weight. And, you know, after I delivered my baby, I also suffered from postpartum depression. And because of that, again, did a lot of overeating. I was struggling to breastfeed and I was terrified to do anything to try to lose weight for fear of losing my milk. And so there was, you know, this immense complexity of my thoughts in terms of what was driving me to do the things I was doing. And I very much felt like my body and my life were not my own anymore. And I was also really stricken with this thought of how much my identity had changed because I was no longer working as a physician. I realized how much I was dependent on the external validation I was getting from my work to determine my worth in the world. That when I was a mom and I was struggling with these new challenges, that I felt like I was lost. I really felt like I was missing this part of me that was so integral for me to feel good about myself. And then I went back to work after maternity leave. And interestingly, for the first few weeks when I went back to work, 
I felt a lot better because I was like, okay, there's that external validation again. You know, people are happy to have me back. But I was also dealing with not knowing what had happened to my patients for the 10 months prior and figuring out, you know, how to work with the way in which my brain had changed postpartum. And so I started to struggle again. And I felt like that was really the beginning of the burnout for me. I thought the only emotions I was ever feeling were anxiety and overwhelm every day. And I started to feel more and more and more like the walls were starting to kind of close in on me that I wasn't very good at being a doctor. I wasn't very good at being a mom. I wasn't very good at doing any of these sort of crucial roles in my life. My whole relationship with fitness and obstacle course racing, that had all crumbled away as well. And so I really felt like there was nothing left of me anymore. And I think I was in denial of the process for a long period of time. I did reach out for help in a few ways. And I remember people like bringing me suggestions from a place of wanting to help me, but things that really were like, Maybe if you're struggling, there had also been a lot of changes in my workplace as well in the time that I was off. And so I no longer had the nurse working with me who I had used to have before. And so, you know, I was struggling with how to get things done in my office. And I remember people making suggestions like, maybe you should just print out everything in your prescription folder and your fax folder and just like scribble off the signature. And, you know, it was, they were well-meaning suggestions because People thought that those were the kind of things or like a week of vacation were the kind of things that were going to help me. But when I thought about it, I was like, my distress is so profound that this doesn't even scratch the surface of my distress that it felt really very invalidating for all of the struggles that I was going through. And so it further isolated me and I felt like I was alone and I was the only person who didn't know how to handle all of these things. And, and I really truly felt like There was no hope and no future for me that this was going to be my life for the rest of my life. And, you know, that wound me up in a place where in September of 2019, I found myself sitting in my office late one night with a very serious plan for suicide that I intended to complete that night. And, you know, I had this fortuitous moment through like, you know, a puddle of tears sitting in my office that I wanted to see my daughter one more time. It really didn't matter what day I committed suicide on, but I wanted to see her one more time before I did it. And, you know, from that place, I went home and I just thought, I, you know, I cried and I thought and I cried and I thought and I realized like, there still is this very small part of me that believes there's hope that something can get better. And so I decided to listen to that part of me. And interestingly, that's how I found my way to coaching. It wasn't looking for coaching, but it was looking for anything that might help me that was outside of the traditional system. I was already involved in the traditional mental health system. You know, I, I had already been doing counseling for a long period of time, but I was looking for something else that was outside of that traditional system that maybe there was something I was missing. And now I know in retrospect that what was missing was me having tools that I could do this work in my own life and learning how to do this work myself, right? And me being the agent of change. But, you know, that really is the moment that kind of turned my life and reshaped my life forever. And you know, I'm internally grateful for it because I feel like all my life is bonus time now, really. And, you know, in many ways for me, knowing the this like severe, severe consequence of going down this road of burnout to mental health crisis 
to suicidal ideation, understanding that process for me gives me such a hard reason why I want to look after myself that it has made such profound changes in my life. And as that journey evolved, and I realized these extraordinary tools we have as coaches to help anyone really to understand where their own mind is getting in their way, for one, but two, where we can start to make changes internally to increase our internal validation, to increase our sense of purpose, to increase our fulfillment in this life that we can thrive really in any circumstance when we have these tools. And so that for me, I was so compelled by this process that, you know, it just eventually led me down the road of becoming a coach as well, because I felt like I couldn't sit around and keep all this secret to myself. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's a very, you know, very, very powerful story from being like your rock bottom to coming back to helping other physicians so that they hopefully don't reach that rock bottom and hopefully never have to be there. Did you, when you were developing the suicidality, did you see it coming? Like, was it a gradual thing or was it all of a sudden it was there? No, it was quite gradual for me. I mean, I remember you know, throughout that whole year of 2019, feeling like I was suicidal most days. But the plan to commit suicide, that came on quickly. You know, I was passively suicidal for a long time. And then one day in my brain, it just clicked like enough was enough. Hmm. You know, so thankful that you had that little bit of, you know, that thought that made you want to go home and see your daughter. Like, had you at that point talked to anybody about the suicidality or was it something you're keeping to yourself? No, you know, I, I mean, I mostly kept it to myself. I think, you know, I shared the, with my counseling team, I shared the thoughts that my life felt hopeless and wanting to die to end the sorrow and the pain that I was in. But I don't think I really ever shared with anyone the, like, how close I came until quite a while afterwards when I had recovered from where I was that I, you know, I finally began to kind of speak about how profound this whole experience was for me. And I think this is an important question. And if you don't feel comfortable answering, let me know. But because I think it speaks to why don't physicians reach out for help? But in that space, why didn't you share how close you were? What were your barriers? Mm-hmm. I think I just didn't believe that there was anything that was going to help me. I think I believed that I had, you know, I was tapped into all of the traditional resources. I was taking medications. I was, you know, really kind of accessing all the help that traditionally I knew was available to me. And I think I just didn't, I didn't see. And truthfully, I really believe there was something wrong with me, right? Like I believe that Mm. this was a problem with my brain and that, you know, maybe my brain was never going to be able to bounce back. And I work in a small community. And so definitely there's fear of stigma and how that can impact my career and my life and all of those, you know, elements as well. And it's fascinating because I was sharing with you, Siobhan, that, you know, I collected a little bit of data. I used the Medscape 
physician burnout and suicide report. So this is a little bit biased towards the United States, but quite frankly, you know, physician suicide is an even more serious issue in the United States than it is. I mean, physician suicide kills the equivalent of one medical school class every year in the United States. And, you know, in that study, right, 50% of physicians report being burned out, women more than men. And what always strikes me when I look at this data is that 45% of physicians report that the way they coped with their suicidal ideation was isolation. Hmm. 45%. Like, I mean, this is terrifying, right? Like they also go on to talk about how they coped. Some people reached out to family or friends, right? I mean, I can remember thinking if I reached out to family or friends that people were just going to think like this was sort of me being dramatic and not really truly understand the, the gravity of the issue. People talk about eating junk food, 33%. People talk about drinking alcohol to cope, 24%. People talk about binge eating, 20% of people, that's one in five people cope with this by binge eating, right? I mean, there's a lot of behaviors there that are indicative of us doing things to try to avoid the emotion we're feeling and kind of like tune out. And I can really remember that being a big part of what was happening for me too, right? It would be like eating and playing Sudoku for hours because I would get home and just feel numb and like there was nothing left to give. And these are, you know, hallmark criteria of burnout, right? It's this depersonalization, cynicism, complete emotional exhaustion, and then feeling utterly ineffective in every way in our life. And so I would get home from work. I'd cry my whole way home from work. I'd sit in the car, get myself together, go in, and then I'd plunk myself down in a chair. And I remember just thinking like, how am I going to ever be a mom to my growing child and, you know, all of these sort of other things that, you know, you can't anticipate happening as your kids get older in their lives. Like if this is my reality, how will I ever do any of those things? It's really, you know, it, it is, it's very profound to listen to the voices of people who have been in this place. Because I think we have these traditional criteria for burnout, but so many physicians deny being burned out or really don't see this experience because it's so pervasive in our culture, right? And then we are taught in this culture of shame. We're taught to resist emotions. There's so much groupthink that we're just like swapping thoughts about, you know, all of the external challenges with the system amongst each other. And, and we're taught it's to just, not show weakness either, right? And I think absolutely. that's a big thing with kind of discussing burnout, discussing mental health, discussing suicidality for physicians. And I wonder if that's part of the reason why so many deal with it through isolation is to discuss it shows weakness. And all of medical school and residency is essentially teaching you to not show weakness. 100%, right? And, you know, I wrote down some things that women have told me over time because I think it's really profound to listen to people speaking firsthand on what their experiences look like because sometimes we might relate to this better than like looking up some criteria in a textbook about what, <laughs> what is burnout, right? So tired of faking it. I thought about driving my car off the road. I had no future. My back was against the wall. I believed I was failing at everything. If this is as good as it gets, I can't do it anymore. I wouldn't even laugh at my kids anymore. It is the most isolating misery you could ever imagine. And then this relates directly to what you were just saying, Siobhan. Accepting help is a sign of weakness. So we press on. 
And I've heard people even say like medicine was their $300,000 mistake that they made. So yeah, I think, you know, there's lots of different ways this can show up. But if these sort of thoughts resonate with you guys, then you might be burned out and not even know that you're burning out, which is part of the reason why I say that it can look like all these different things, right? And, you know, maybe not just fit into kind of this textbook. And I also really truly believe it's a continuum and a spectrum as well, right? And so we can be sort of mildly burned out, moderately burned out, severely burned out, right? And, you know, we're probably going to start to progress along that continuum from burnout to mental health disorders to suicide as the burnout worsens. So if somebody resonates with those statements, what would be your tools or the places you would suggest starting? Because of course, when you're sitting in that burnout, been there, and you know, what it feels like is everything would have to change for it to be better. It feels like you'd have to totally change your work and you feel stuck in what you're committed to do for work. It feels like something has to change with the parenting, like, which obviously there's not easy ways to change the parenting. You know, like if it feels like every single aspect of your life needs to change for you to be able to feel better. And so where do you start when you're in that position? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the crux of it. Right. And I think what I would suggest to people to do first, if you're not really sure where to get help or what areas of your life you most need help in, right? Because our brain wants to wander to all of those external contributing factors to our burnout. And guess what happens when we do that? We feel totally powerless because so many of the external are outside of our control, right? But if we can start to shift towards an internal locus of control, then we can start to realize where the way we're thinking and the emotions we're creating for ourselves, right, or the way we're handling our emotions when we're looking at these external factors, that there's a lot of work we can do there to change our ability to cope with the external. But also what happens is as our brain starts to change in that respect is we are actually better at finding solutions for the external problems Mm -hmm. as well. And so, you know, to me, the start of this journey looks like a couple of things. I think the first one actually is rest. That's the number one thing I suggest anybody who's acutely burned out is rest. The very beginning of my journey looked like taking two weeks off of work where I hired a locum who did everything for me and I did nothing pertaining to my practice. And it bought me blank space time to think about what I needed in my life. And that was where I came to some of find some of these resources and start to just take a leap of faith and try some coaching. But I couldn't have done it without that blank space time to think. And how can you use that blank space time, right? I can use it by starting to put a pen to paper and just starting to look at the ways you're thinking about everything that's going on in your life. And I think that can be, and I really encourage people to do this from not a, an attempt to problem solve, not an attempt to judge anything in their lives, but just to get it all out so that we can start to understand what we're thinking about. Now, I'm going to share with you, Siobhan, if I'm hoping you can put it in the show notes. I created this mind map on burnout and the contributing factors. And so what you'll see is there's a mix of internal and external, but really where coaching kind of plays is in, if you're looking at the mind map, the top left-hand bubble and the bottom right-hand. And so, you know, my terminology for this is 
having poor emotional processing skills, right? So starting to learn the tools of how to process our emotions. And then the bottom right hand one is the one that I call the female MD mind traps. And so this has to do with the way we've been taught how to think and, you know, how that pertains to us as women in medicine. So this can look like being overly self-critical, having, you know, very loud imposter syndrome, being perfectionist, having unattainable standards, unrealistic expectations for ourselves, overworking, which I think is an addiction for many people in medicine. I think we learn to, we actually train our brains to do this. It's similar to like an addiction to alcohol. We train our brains to be addicted to the validation that we get from creating things in the world with our work. And it comes to a point where it's actually hard for us to rest or unplug or turn our brains off when we're doing anything with our family because we're so hardwired to work. And then if we don't work, it creates anxiety for us and we feel restless and we feel uncomfortable and we don't know what to do with that emotion. Yes, you're going to see other things on there, right? Like the gender biases, the things that come up because we are women in medicine, right? The kind of things we have to deal with because we're women in medicine. You're going to also see some struggles with time management. So over committing, having scarcity thoughts around our time, right? And then you're going to see the stuff that comes down to the nature of the work, which are, you know, those are the systemic causes that are typically spoken about in the literature in terms of looking at burnout. But to me, it's not a complete picture if we don't look at the internal factors as well as the external factors, because the problem really with this is that burned out doctors don't have the energy and the stamina and the ability to, and the brain bandwidth to tackle the system with novel solutions, right? Which is what we need. But from that place where we're burned out, we don't have the resources and the wherewithal, right? We know burnout leads to lost time, lower wages, addictions, mental health disorders, medical errors, and physician suicide. These are not the people who are out there fighting to change the system. We have to believe we're capable of creating change before we can do that. And so to me, it's so important that we address these internal issues first so that we have the wherewithal to tackle the external. I think another, just when you're listing some of those internal things, it would be people-pleasing. Like I think women physicians, we people-please and we don't recognize it as people-pleasing, but the, you know, I'm sick and I feel really horrible, but I need to get up and get to my office. Obviously, we don't do this now during COVID, but (laughs) I need to get up and get to my office so everybody gets their prescriptions refilled and that sore foot that's been there for a couple of weeks can be seen. That's people-pleasing. Like I can't possibly say no to that or ask somebody to cover me for that because, you know, it just isn't okay. That's people pleasing. Like that's us swapping our internal health for that external validation or to keep the people around us happy. Totally. The coming home exhausted and feeling like we need to just jump in with the kids and not asking to our partner or significant other to say, hey, could I have just a half hour of quiet time before I start with the kids? Right. Or, you know, that's people pleasing. That's like that. Like we have to keep showing our value externally. And I think that leads to a lot of burnout. And I don't think we recognize it at all when we're doing it. Feels like that's just what you have to do. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. I mean, I recently coached one of my clients on this and it was such a profound thing for her in her brain. So, you know, we were talking about how when she comes home from 
call when she's been on call leading into the weekend. And when she comes home from call, she rarely ever gets a nap. And it leads to her having this terrible weekend where she's stressed out. She's yelling at her kids. She, you know, has a hard time really coping with anything at home. And I said to her, like, if you were going to establish your own boundary, right, which is if you, which typically the problem was with her spouse who would tell her, like, if you got even a little bit of sleep, then you should be fine to look after our kid for the day, right? I need some time to go and do whatever, whatever, right? And so I said to her, I said, what if you were to establish a boundary, but the boundary really was you following through on a consequence, right? I said, what would that look like? Like, could it look like you saying, if you don't give me some time to sleep when I get home from an overnight call shift, then I'm going to stay at work and I'm going to sleep for a couple hours before I come home so that I can come home rejuvenated and ready to be there for my family and ready to look after my child and all these kind of things. And so she tried it. And amazingly, she said, like, I had such a good weekend. And interestingly, she was also able from that place to find another hour to take a nap at some point over the weekend. And, you know, it's fascinating because it's like we take off these barriers in our brain. As soon as we start to do these kind of things for ourselves, we start out with tunnel vision. We think there's no way to solve the problem. And then we start to realize there's another possible way that we could do things. We try it. It works really well. And suddenly it's like a domino effect that we can figure out how to solve so many of these other problems in our lives. Mm-hmm when we kind of start playing this arena. I often speak of this, but my very first life coach was around 2016. And, you know, when I was thinking about this while you were talking about the burnout, and I think I didn't know I was burnt out. That would have been my youngest would have been just three. So I had six, two sixes and a three-year-old. And I don't think I would have thought of myself as being burnt out. I would have just thought it as like, this is just hard. This is supposed to be hard because I've got a bunch of little kids running around and I'm a physician and running a practice with my partners and stuff like that. And then there was an evening session on brief action planning. And then he did a little section on kind of, I think like a mindfulness meditation. And I was like, well, like that five minutes (laughs) made me feel so much better. Like that little bit of a meditation and then playing with the brief action planning with the people like we had to break out and practice it. And so I ended up hiring him. And the thing that I learned and the most profound thing that I took away from that, and I think what led me to eventually become a coach is the tiniest little changes have profound effects. So when I was in that spot, like to give you an idea for people listening of my own burnout is it was in a January that I started working with him, but I was, there's so many things that were upsetting to me and that my brain was just constantly churning over. And I remember like Sunday nights before the office started, I would, again, on Monday, I would be getting anxious and like, you know, the end of my Sunday was like all wound up and anxious about nothing in particular, but just that I didn't want to work. I wasn't getting my notes done. So then all weekend I'd be like, oh, I should get up early and get some notes done because heaven forbid I actually take time out of parenting to do work I haven't done. <laughs> so it was like, like I'd have to get up at, in my mind at six or something on a Sunday to do the work before the kids get up so I could then pretend to be a parent who was fully present. <laughs> like <laughs> When I, I laugh because I'm laughing at my own thought patterns about how real that felt. That, that that's how it would have to be because I, and so that speaks to the guilt I was caring about how I was with the kids and how I wasn't, you know, doing enough with the kids and things like that. And I think the first thing we worked on was I just started making myself leave the office in the afternoon, like for a five minute walk. And that was like the very first thing. That's all we did. 
And just that one little change just started to, you know, just create that little space where you start to realize, okay, you know, that was a little bit better. I do feel a little bit calmer. And then it just helped kind of get the brain churning about maybe I can do things a little bit differently. Maybe it doesn't have to always look like this. Yes. Yeah. That blank space time is so powerful. And, you know, that's like I was writing down some tips that I would offer people who are struggling with burnout. And, you know, my number one was rest, like you asked me before, but my number two was those baby steps, right? And Mm -hmm. what can you do in those five minutes today, but really coming from a place where you believe that like these five minutes are for you and that that matters because truthfully, nobody else in the world is responsible for our self-care, for our pillars of health. Like we are the ones who are responsible and there isn't ever going to be a knight in white shining armor who's going to come in and decide that they're going to battle, you know, for us to look after ourselves. And for me, you know, I got so much clarity. Like my third thing would be figure out what your hard why is, like why it matters for you to do that work. Because quite literally, my hard why was that if I don't do this, I'm going to die. A lot of patients are going to be without a physician. You know, my children, my child and soon to be children are going to be without a mom. My husband's going to be without a wife. Like it's a pretty hard why. And yeah, it made it a lot easier for me to draw some lines in the sand because I had such a hard why. But I offer this hard why to a lot of female physicians. And I mean, this is applicable to anybody, female or male, right? But like there is a way to have a career in medicine and love the thing that you have worked so hard for and also love your life and not feel like you have to run away from it. There is a way to do that. And that is a powerful why if you are determined to figuring out what your life looks like in order to have all of those things. And if you decide that you are going to work towards that, then you can start to take those five minutes seriously, not see them from a place of scarcity, but see them from a place of true abundance in terms of healing your relationship with yourself and starting to treat yourself with that unconditional love, right? That doesn't matter if I get all the things done in the day. It doesn't matter, you know, if I fall short today or if I excel today. Like my love, I'm worthy of loving myself no matter which one of those things I do, right? I'm just worthy of love inherently because I'm a human. I kind of play around with the idea of like, if you look at a bunch of kids, right? Like we look at kids and we watch them playing and we're like, oh my gosh, like they're just amazing, right? And we never judge them on like, how well did that child climb the slide? And how well did they like, you know, (laughs) pick up the toys today and how well did they, you know, speak to their peers or any of these kind of things, right? No, we just see them as inherently lovable, worthy beings because they're children. But why does that change along the way with how we start to look at ourselves and we become adults? So we become more like worthy of merit or love because of, you know, external things we accomplish in the world. It's it's a question worth asking, right? Like what changed about mm-hmm. us that we're no longer because we are those same children at heart where the we're still those exact same people totally like just imagine if and I this is something that I feel quite passionate about is what I think of as like an epidemic of worthiness issues particularly for female physicians like I'd say almost every female physician I coach feels she's not measuring up in some aspect 
of her life. And what if we all as physicians, female or male, just held the belief that we were worthy, that we were doing what needed to be done in the right way for us to do it? Like, what would that be like for the world? Yeah. It blows my mind because I think like there would be so much change and so much less distress if we just approached everything that we're doing with just an internal core belief that we're actually worthy and we're doing it in the right way for us. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it would be so much easier to show up authentic and speak your truth and not from a place of defensiveness, right? Because defensiveness feels crappy when we show up and we're like feeling like we've got to be crusaders, right? But if we show up and we speak our truth and we own our stories and we overcome these the stigma and we ask for what we're worth because we're coming from this place that we believe we're inherently worthy. Like things look so different. The dialogue in our brain is so different. The way we communicate with other people, the way our relationships look, the kinds of things we do with our time, the even the way we show up at home, like it's all so different when we come from that place. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a thought when we're struggling with worth and struggling with, you know, imposter syndrome or just feeling like it's, we're worth taking the time to do self-care and things like that. We think that us believing we're worthy and asking for the things that we need to protect ourselves in that worth takes away from other people. Uh-huh. Like it's almost like we think that there's this limited supply of, of worth, but the reality is we could all just be worthy. And it actually gives more, like what you're just saying, it gives more to other people in our lives. Like if we believe we're worthy and and that makes our days just feel better and we're slightly less stressed, then we're a little bit less irritable with the kids. Then we're kind of teaching them that you can believe you're worthy. And like, you know, there's so many, like, again, these ripple effects that go out from it that actually give more to the people around you than when we're stuck in that spot of being self-doubt and uncertainty with ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to make a bold statement and say that you ask any woman who has experienced coaching, at least using the tools that we particularly use at the Life Coach School, where we start to help people understand the consequences of the way they're thinking, what emotion that creates for them and how that fuels their actions and the results they get in their life. I think any woman will say that they have so much more to give after learning these tools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and adopting some of these beliefs, like I think they're just so powerful. And, you know, and I have evidence to support that, too, because I have husbands, piles of husbands that I'm building up who are like, (laughs) keep spending money on that coaching because I get more of you, right? My own husband, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I mean, people in terms of their relationships with their kids, I could remember one call like... (laughs) My client's husband jumping on the call and saying like, I just have to tell you that after one call with you, I think she's made more progress than she has in like a year of therapy. (laughs) It was so funny, right? But it, you know, it just goes to show that the concrete nature of this work is very powerful, right? And I think that that's in terms of creating action and change, yeah. And I think too, it's that, that self-ownership of, there's a proper medical term for it, but I want to say actuating, but I don't think that's the right term, but kind of self-efficacy of yes. when we're doing the coaching work of it, instead of being this external thing to fix you, it's tools where you start to really understand what's going on inside of you yeah. in a concrete way, like what you're saying, where you can actually look at it and go like, oh, okay, hey, if I'm thinking this way and it's making me feel, you know, totally distressed, 
what if I just thought slightly different? Like, and again, I always say it doesn't have to be rainbows and unicorns, though. If you like those, go for the rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> but, you know, it just, it can be like the most subtle shift in how you're thinking that can make things feel better. Yeah. Self-actualization, is that it? I don't know. That would be, I think maybe, <laughs> actuating. Let's just coin a new term. <laughs> We're making it up as we go here. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm jumping all over the place with my list of tips. But yes, one of my, you know, one of my tips is get coaching. And, you know, if you don't quite understand like how this works and how this might help you and how this might be different than other things that you've encountered before, like really, I don't think you're going to encounter a coach out there who's not going to be willing to sit down with you and take you through that process in a strategy session to really show you how this is possible for you in your life. If you're sitting out there and you're like, no, I'm the exception to all of these rules. Like my circumstances are such that this is the only reason why I'm struggling. Come and sit and talk with us and we will have that conversation with you and really show you how this could look different. But, you know, another one that I had jumped over, which I think is important for us to talk about quickly, and I think it really ties into the work that you and I both do, Siobhan, is learning how to feel feelings. This is one of my clients once said to me that she thinks there's a hidden curriculum of detachment in medicine. And to me, that was such like a profound way of putting it in terms of how we're often taught to delay gratification and, you know, resist our emotions in the moment because, you know, we can come from literally like being in a room where we deliver a baby who is dead and then have to go into the next room and deliver like a living baby and be happy. And, you know, it's like, these are the things we do in medicine, right? And so, yeah, we learn how to resist emotions. But one of the ways in which we also do this is we avoid emotions too, right? And buffering our emotions, which is basically where we turn to some other thing for false pleasure is so common in medicine. I think for many of us, it's shopping. We might spend like countless hours on social media and be like, what the heck did I just do with my time? Because we're just so emotionally exhausted when we're in this burnout that we like don't even know. We're just looking for anything that might give us like a little hit of dopamine and make us feel good. And that's where this food piece comes in too, right? Is so many of us turn to food for pleasure. I'm sure that you can probably speak to this a little bit more too, Siobhan, in terms of what you see. Oh, totally. Like I think usually when people come to me, it's they feel it's about the food, right? And that there's an issue with the food and probably feel that there's some sort of internal defect with them that they can't resist the food. And definitely I felt that during my weight struggles. But the reality is when, if it was just about the food and you just needed to know what to eat, well, then it would just be, you just get, you know, you'd pick a diet and you'd stick to it. The hallmark that it's about something else is when you, you don't, if there's a way of eating that you think makes sense for you, but you can't stick to it. That's the hallmark that there's other stuff going on and that it probably has nothing to do with the food. And that's that buffering, right? Like where in evening eating would be classic for a lot of the people I work with where, you know, you, you get through that day, like you're saying, you resist the emotions through the day, you kind of step them down and keep going no matter what happens, no matter how crazy things get, you know, what diagnosis is you're delivering to people, what you're witnessing, you shove it down and you keep going. And then we get home in the evenings and 
finally have that opportunity to kind of take a deep breath and relax. And then our brain's like, okay, let's fix this. I have a lot of discomfort happening from what went on through the day. Let's fix it. And the food is just your most readily available, takes the least amount of effort and is gives you that little bit of dopamine. And so it makes total sense that that's what our brains do in this state, that they want food. And it has nothing to do with anything wrong with the person. It has nothing to do with the lack of willpower. It has nothing to do with just not knowing what to eat. It's just simply your brain's learned response to the discomfort that it's feeling. And so when, as people know, if you've listened to this podcast a lot, the majority of what I talk about has nothing to do with food. And when I'm coaching physicians, the majority of what we coach on has, you know, very little to do with food. It's about finding those underlying things that are actually driving the way to eat or the need to eat. And what I say to people is the food is actually the symptom. So it's not... We don't have to focus there, though we're used to focusing there. The food's a symptom. And so then all we have to do is figure out what's actually driving that symptom. And then the beauty of it is it's so much easier to change than when you're just focusing on the food. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We should link an emotional wheel as well to this talk because I can remember the first time I got my hands on an emotional wheel, I was like, whoa, there's a lot of emotions. Like. <laughs> Like, there isn't just anxiety and overwhelm. There's actually so many other emotions, you know? And just as my emotional vocabulary started to increase, it got easier to talk about emotions because I, like, I, I literally had no literacy when it came to this topic. And I still see this a lot in my clients that they're like, I don't know. Like, I just feel bad. And I mean, it's not about getting it perfect and picking out the perfect emotion. That doesn't really matter. But it's about starting to understand that there's all this complexity of what we can feel and that this is just part of a normal human life to feel things. And that if we exist in a place where we're afraid to feel things or we don't know how to feel things, and this is such a big part of coaching work as well, right? Is teaching people how to feel things so that they come to a place where they realize, I can feel my emotions and I don't have to do things that potentially have negative consequences for me, like a huge visa bill or more weight and not fitting into my clothes or potentially even like other more serious addiction issues, right? I don't have to do these things to try to numb out the way I feel because I have a whole other toolbox of tools that I can use to deal with emotions because I've learned this skill set. So it takes time to do that work, but that is some of the most powerful work that I think we do as coaches and helping people through this journey, really. And I think what I would say to that, I 100% believe, and it's a lot of the work I'm doing right now with my clients is the, how do you actually feel an emotion? And it's profoundly powerful when you sit with somebody and actually do, as you know, we've got an exercise that we do where you actually sit with the emotion, just experience it through its entirety. However, if you're sitting here listening and you're on your own, emotions can feel scary right? Like there are some emotions where you may know that there's like anxiety that's driving your eating, but the idea of feeling that anxiety can feel scary and overwhelming. And I think that I have kind of a twofold advice for that. One would be if you want to start experiencing what an emotion is and focusing on feeling it, start with a lower risk emotion. Like if you have certain emotions in your life that feel just very high risk or very scary, don't start with those. Just start with like a smaller one. But number two, if it is a challenge for you and if you've when we talk about feeling emotion, if you feel a reaction inside yourself going like, I never want to do that, 
then that might be a good reason to hire a coach Mm -hmm. because that would be a hallmark to me that you're not feeling your emotions and then there's probably something that's coming instead of, like you said, the shopping, the social media, the eating, the drinking, the gambling would be another one that may be having negative consequences in your life. Sometimes I actually start to play with my clients with, especially clients who've come from background of significant mental illness, like depression or anxiety, because we can really feel like when we've had trouble with depression and anxiety, that emotions are not safe, especially things like sadness. You know, it can trigger us to think about, am I slipping down that road again, right? Doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. feel safe to feel those kind of things because they're so familiar. So sometimes I play around with helping those clients actually to allow positive emotions, right? So, you know, they'll notice a shift on a client's face when they're sitting at home and we're coaching and they pick up their puppy. And I'm like, okay, what does it feel like right now? Like I see a change in you, right? I can see that you've shifted emotionally, but start to tune into that. Like start to look at what it feels like to feel good too, because so often like we don't pay attention to that anymore, right? Like we have blunted that because we're just constantly thinking up the thoughts that create the negative for us that we don't notice those little split second shifts that we have. And so if we can start to notice those shifts and allow that in, because some people actually struggle with like intolerance of being happy. And, in you know, when they've kind of thought long enough that there's no value in this, right, that they start to, you know, or there's people who talk about toxic positivity and toxic optimism. I mean, this isn't what we're talking about here, right? Like this isn't talking about silver lines or us trying to like placate ourselves. Like this is us really looking at what really comes up, what's really shifting in terms of the emotional vibration, whatever's happening in our physical body as we're experiencing emotions. Can we just start to notice that more and realize that like we are experiencing more emotions than we think we are? And then we can start to play with, okay, Now, what are the really nasty ones that I don't want to feel that I'm buffering away? What are those like? And can I create a safe space? But first, it needs to be safe to experience a breadth of emotion to begin with, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a fantastic point. We should probably be wrapping up, but do you have any sort of last minute tips or anything else that you want to share? Yeah, I think we've pretty much covered all of my, so, you know, my top tips, I'll just summarize them real quick. So Mm -hmm. if you're in burnout and you feel like your, this talk has helped you to realize like, oh my gosh, I think this might be me, right? Start with giving yourself some rest and some blank space time to think. Then take your baby step. It might just look like five minutes of writing out what's happening in your brain, what's going on in your day, what you're thinking about, okay? Then you can look to these tools I'm going to share with Siobhan so she can share in the show notes, the burnout mind map. You can look at the emotional wheel and just start to notice like, where am I on this burnout mind map? And what emotions am I feeling? Like, can I just at least notice what's happening for me internally? Then I encourage people to think, and I didn't share this one before, but I encourage people just to do a little look. Think about what are your really broad categories of your priorities for what matters to you in your life. And think about what are your individual pillars of health. So like how much sleep do you need? Like, do you need exercise, not need exercise? Do you need so much time alone in a day? Like, what do you need to be healthy? And then look at your life and really look like, is my life congruent with my priorities and the pillars of health I have, or is it incongruent? And if it's incongruent, meaning that, you know, you're doing a whole bunch of other things that really aren't that important to you, 
we've got to ask ourselves the question of why. Why are we living our lives like this? Because we do have choice about if this is what we want. And then we come to my fifth one, which really is our hard why. Our hard why to, if we look, we take all this data in and we start to understand that our lives are not happening the way we would choose for them to happen. We've got to ask ourselves, what is our reason for committing to making changes so that our lives become more aligned with those things that are really important to us? And then I just say, you know, practice this self-love, this radical, unconditional love for yourself. And this idea of worthiness that we spoke about, right? Can we start to think of ourselves as inherently worthy because we're just human beings on this earth, right? That we can so easily, I think, apply this to other people in our thoughts, especially if we look at like broad levels, right? You know, humankind, right? But then it's so hard to apply this to ourselves because we've been brought up and taught through this culture of medicine, right? That like achievement is everything. And so can we start to redefine that a little bit? And then of course, get coaching. (laughs) Excellent. And then um, where can people find you? Yeah, so I have a free Facebook group called Anti-Fragile Female Physicians, which is linked through my business Facebook page and on my profile and on my Instagram. And so you can find me on my Facebook page at the Anti-Fragile Female MD, but definitely come and join us in the Facebook group because there's lots of teaching in there, lots of free resources. I'm always doing new stuff. I do a live show there every week. I've got a big launch for my coaching program coming up for the winter. So there'll be lots of information there as well. Or you can email me, Anna. So it's just A-N-A, short for Anastasia, A-N-A at antifragilefmd.com. So A-N-T-I-F-R-A-G-I-L-E-F-M-D, female md.com. Or of course, on my website, which is antifragilefmd.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your advice. It's been great. Thank you. It's fun. Love it. That was fantastic. And I really appreciate Anna coming on and spending the time to talk about such an important topic. Let me know what you think by sending me an email at info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. And if you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you could share it with a friend that helps the podcast get found and helps people find these important episodes that can be helpful to so many of us physicians. All right. Have a fantastic week, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.